Uh, how can he say that he's going to be lifted up from the earth? You know, how can he be talking about his death? And Jesus says, well, uh, the light is for a limited time. You know, walk while you have the light. Stay in the light. Believe in the light. Become sons of the light so that the darkness does not overcome you. You cannot be a follower of Jesus and be half-hearted about the light. It's urgent that we act based upon the light that we have now and do what God wants us to do. The darkness is the enemy. The darkness is coming. The darkness is there. It's almost like will we go to the dark side or not. And the Lord wants us to, to walk in his light. Um, you may not understand everything. They didn't understand how Jesus was going to die and all that. They needed to take advantage of every moment of light they had and walk and live in that light. All right, do you have a comment or question then through verse 36? All right, let's uh, proceed forward. Um, the middle of 36 to 43. and perform many signs. It's sort of like a uh, summary section. We're kind of concluding Jesus' ministry. He performed many signs. They still weren't believing in him, verse 37. Why not? Full opportunity for belief had been given. He had presented himself. But unbelief is really not a matter of inadequate evidence. Unbelief is a heart problem. The problem, as he, as he cites from Isaiah, is that, that their eyes were blinded, their heart was hardened. You know, we think, well, if, if somebody doesn't believe, we've got to, to teach them more. Well, if somebody doesn't believe because they don't know, then yes. But sometimes people don't believe because they do not have receptivity to God's word. And ultimately... God will blind and harden the person who does not receive the word of God. If you persistently refuse God's grace, you will eventually lose your power to receive God's grace. The I will not leads to the I cannot. God will blind, God will harden as a punishment for the person who stubbornly refuses to receive the evidence because of a hard heart. You see in, in their case, many even of the rulers, verse 42, believed. But why wouldn't they confess it? Exactly. They were fearful of the threat that sometimes was actually carried out that they would be ex-synagogue. And they wanted God, the men's approval. They wanted 
to, to look good. <coughs> and, and that's such a problem for us. Now, you think about the contrast with verse 41. Isaiah was seeing the glory of the Lord in that passage in Isaiah 6. He had a vision of God's glory. They were seeking the glory of men. You know, what a contrast. And, and that's our problem. Who do we want the glory from? Who do we want honor from? Who do we want acceptance from? Who do we want to make a good impression on? And so often we, like them, are silent because we're afraid we're going to displease them. We're afraid they won't like us. We're afraid that, that you know, we'll lose face before them. The desire for glory from men. He's, he's talking about in chapter 5 and chapter 7. And it's still such a problem. When our hearts divided. And when we want people's approval. It's idolatry. It's the people's approval. Takes over the place that God deserves in our life. We absolutely cannot allow the desire for men to look up to us. Men to like us. Men to be impressed with us. To, to motivate us, because if so, it will take God's place. It'll be an idol to us. That's what was happening with them. So here you have people not believing, people believing but not confessing, because they've got hearts that aren't really centered on the Lord. And it's interesting how then, that when he comes to summarize the response to Jesus, it comes down to a matter of the heart and what they want. It doesn't at always. Comments, Tim. Maybe this is the way I read verse 43. But when I think that someone you know, who loves the approval of me, I think it's someone who's always actively trying to look good, trying to make themselves look better in some way, trying to trust what they say or do. Not necessarily someone who's just believes something and believes it's right and won't confess it or because of fear, you know. But really, it really is the same thing. I mean, you know, uh, even sort of passive, um, it's the same thing with passive. Excellent point. Yes. We need to see it that way. I mean, think about it. How many times do we shy away from speaking for the Lord and acting for the Lord because we're afraid of men? If you're afraid of men and therefore you will not stand up for the Lord, what is it? It is a desire for man's approval or to avoid man's rejection. And it's putting man ahead of God. We can't do that, but that, man, that's our challenge. So much our challenge. Andrew. A really good question, like, what will you be answering? Will you be answering men's glory on the judgment day, or will you be answering Jesus on the judgment day? Exactly. Why, why glorify men, glorify Jesus? It's worth it. Eternal or little pleasure so-called for, like, really, really short time. You're right. Good, good perspective. Great. Um, verse 41, when he says, these things Isaiah said when he talked his glory and spoke with him, do you think there might be any um, connection there between uh, chapter 1, verse 14, and us beholding his glory, and now Isaiah saying this when he beholds his glory, or do you think that's not I hadn't thought about it, but I would think there would be some connection. <laughs> ben? Talk some back in chapter nine about the <coughs> and how some people will think of God as just being this terrible idea. It's like he's always so judgmental and so harsh in the Bible, and yet those who are religious oftentimes go to the other extreme. 
and God, we see God as this super loving thing who just will go to any lengths whatsoever to get us back, and nothing could ever make us get on his bad side just to love him. And then we read verses like verse 40, and it's kind of comfortable for us to think about God, you know, doing this, saying he's blinding their eyes. And we need to realize that you know, God is you know, loving, he's not a monster, but at the same time he's also a judge, and he is just. And if we want this, if we want to believe lies, God let us have it. And we find that to be a very discomforting, and it should be. It should make us really think about, you know, where we are in life, because God will let us do this. Too often can't do this, he's always going to be there for us. He just needs to send them to Good point. Yeah. Bill? Um, when you said that God will harden, their, harden our hearts if we don't, I mean, if we consistently refuse to try to serve Him or believe in Him, did you have the scripture in mind, or did you have like, anything that? This one? You know, the quotation from Isaiah 6. What he did with Pharaoh. Same thing. Daniel. People see this as kind of like a, uh, like a summary, like the whole book, a like summary of all the people reacting in the whole book. I think so. Because it seems like these are kind of two basic reactions all along. People have either been, I'm not going to believe this in spite of all the evidence, and they kind of turn their heart against it, I will not believe this. Or they maybe are impressed by the signs, but they really want more to be, you know, look good to men or you know, please men so they don't, they don't have faith in not being very strong. I agree. Back to Bill's question, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 to 12 also. Okay. Um, how about this last section? Uh, you know, this uh, seems to be kind of the wrap-up sermon. <laughs> you know, the wrap-up exhortation. Because starting in 13, it's going to be Jesus with the disciples and then him on trial. He's not really with, you know, the crowd uh, at other times uh, or, or after this. So, 44 to 50. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not return to the darkness. If anyone hears me saying this and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges me. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So in 44 to 46, our response to Jesus is not just our response to Jesus. <coughs> how we receive Jesus, that's how we receive God, because God sent Jesus. Jesus was his ambassador. Jesus was his representative, his son. And so the consequences of our attitude toward Jesus is really our attitude toward the Father. That's significant. If we're going to receive Jesus properly... Receiving him does not just mean having a good feeling toward Jesus. It means listening to what he says. You know, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, 47, 
I do not judge him. I did not come to judge the world but save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. God's word spoken by Jesus is the revelation God gave him and therefore it will judge a man. Receiving Jesus means receiving God. But to receive Jesus, we must receive what Jesus said. You know, when they reject Jesus' teaching, they're rejecting the words that offer eternal life. There is no way to be saved rejecting what Jesus says. So this is really focusing on the deeper issues in the, in the coming of Jesus. Receiving Jesus, receiving God, receiving Jesus means you must receive what he says or be judged by his words. And he says, verse 49, because I didn't speak on my own initiative. Jesus has no independent greatness. What he says and what he does is what the Father told him to say and do. And his commandment is eternal life. So, Jesus is totally dependent on the Father. You better listen to what he says. I think we struggle with that in the religious world. That people often think they really love Jesus. They don't much care for what he teaches, but they really love him. Or, or whatever. How can you divorce Jesus' person from Jesus' words? He came to reveal in words as well as in life the Father. Comments and questions? JP. I love how humbling he seems to be in this passage because, I don't know, I guess, to take a different perspective, when we, if you do respect Jesus, you, hold, you can hold him up. You know, a high pedestal. Do you think the one person that could have said, you know, I speak on my initiative, you know, I bring these words, the one person that has that authority, he doesn't use it, and he remembers that the Father is still the one who is saying, and I don't know, at least for me, for someone who's teaching the word, for anyone who wants to teach the word, it's a constant reminder that it's never, obviously it's never us, but it's not even... Jesus who sees it as himself, he sees it as God's. And what a blessing it is to be able to speak the words of God. Amen. Another thing like the um, comment actually yours, like you're saying, people love God, but they don't love his word. They don't really love God because they're not even if they don't love the word, that would probably mean they're not even obeying him. And plus if you don't obey him, you'd be double minded. God does not want you to be double-minded. You can, plus he says, do not serve two masters. You cannot love one and the other. You love one. Exactly. So. Uh, I like, well, Matthew really emphasizes how Jesus is king. Mark, how Jesus is a servant. And Luke, more how Jesus is the perfect man. John, one big thing that we see is that he is the son of God. Yes. And as the son of God, he only does what the Father's will is. Yes. But and it also emphasizes his deity at the same time. And and here's where we, we see that come to fruition is, you know, I'm still I'm still just doing only what the Father tells me to do. It's emphasizing him as the Son of God. Amen. Mason. So in verse thirty six, Jesus says he, he finishes this sermon in the previous verses, and then he disappears. <coughs> then in verse 44, he starts talking again. Is is that where John has just included the, the rest of that sermon at the end? Because he wants to say, in the middle, this is, here are the responses of the people. 
but Jesus hasn't actually finished talking yet, or is this another sermon later, or what? I don't know the answer to that. My inclination would be to think uh, this is not necessarily in chronological order. That this is a wrap-up sermon, but not, ne- not necessarily after he hit himself in verse 36, perhaps sometime before. Daniel? I was going to say that possibly this is kind of like a summary of what Jesus has been trying to tell people after the summary of their reception of the book. It's kind of like a summary of, or like kind of like one, one little short sermon that the yeah, a lot of people take it as kind of like John just puts some sayings together and kind of gives a summary of what Jesus says. The problem with that is Jesus cried out and said, makes it seem like this is actually a, an exhortation, a sermon of Jesus. But I don't think it has to be in chronological order. Obviously, the Gospels aren't always that. Ben? I've seen it in all, but I said it from crying out. That happened in chapter 7, and where he's on the water spring. Is there any reason for the difference in verb usage there for. Well, I think crying out would certainly emphasize the passion and power. You know, if it says he said it, that's probably not as strong as if he cried out and said. So I think this is a, a weighty teaching, kind of like a verily, verily I say to you kind of a thing. Roger. Um. You explain a little because you said in verse 50. I know that this is the commandment. Um, easy is eternal life. Um, I don't know. When I think about eternal life. I think about he said if you keep the commandment, this is eternal life. I don't. Can you explain that a little? Life's in Jesus, and life's in being and doing and believing what He says. You know. I mean, I think you know this. These are not just mere words. This is our life. How does how does God give life to us? He He tells us how to be and how to go in the way of life. So it's almost like, I don't know, because a lot of times when you talk about eternal life, you think about heaven. Uh, so kind of like eternal life is this... But eternal life is not a place. Eternal life is our relationship with God. 17.3, the eternal life is knowing God. So, so I mean, <laughs> heaven is... What is it, Paul and Hart, or somebody says that... Uh, I forget. Heaven's not where... Where God is, it's something like that. But 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 yeah, it's not right. It's not the place. It's where the Father. It's wherever the Father is. Yeah, there's some statement about that. That's a cool way to say that. But yeah, the idea of heaven is being where God is. I mean that it's not it's not some physical location. And if God wasn't there, well anyway, it's heaven. No, no. What makes it heaven is that God's there. Ben, did you still want to say something? I have a question. It's maybe like in first forty eight, what to say and what to speak. I think so. Yeah. Nathan. I think it says it's not about the accommodations. That too, but there's another catchy phrase. It may not be Paul. Okay, something like that. Yeah, that sounded better than whatever I was trying to do. <laughs> Break up. Uh, there are a couple occasions in John where Yes, sort of. The life is in the Son. In Him is life. Now it's First John that says the life is in the Son. I think the way to think of that is being in the Son, we have life. 
The life that's in the Son is eternal life. So when we're in Him, we're in life. And we have life. We have eternal life. Now, the, the, the problem with the Calvinist is, he says we, we eternally have life. No, we have eternal life. Our continuing to have eternal life depends on our continuing to believe in Jesus. If we lose our faith, we leave the Son, we leave the place of eternal life. But the life we have in the Son is eternal life. And as long as we're in the Son, we have that life. That's the way I think the Bible teaches it. So eternal is more of an adjective quality instead of duration? I'm not willing to go there, even though a lot of people say that. Uh, but I'm not sure that's true. But the, the, the eternal life is in the Son. So our having the life that goes on forever depends on our staying in the Son. The life is still eternal and it's still in the sun, but if we're not in him, we don't have it anymore. Ben? This may be beating a dead horse, but I think it's we don't find God in heaven, we find heaven in God. That too, yeah. There's two or three forms of that, but yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. By the time I get to this point in the week, uh, you know, my reasoning is a little slower than usual, and it's usually not too swift. So, Ben? I've heard it suggested that the most quoted verse in the Bible is not actually John 3.16, it's actually from Matthew 7, where it says, Judge not, lest you be judged. You might be right. We hear that a lot. I mean, whether or not it's the actual most quoted verse. And sometimes, you know, we feel very self-conscious about that. And we even see Jesus saying, I have not come to judge the world. And I find verse 48 is so helpful in trying to figure out how to recognize things and how to proceed and what principles govern our actions. Jesus himself says, I don't come just to arbitrarily judge. I don't just... No, I'm not the judge, I think all decisions. He has certain principles that he abides by. His word is really worth judging. Now, he is so close to them to the word that it's hard to distinguish between the two at times. But the idea is that there are principles here that are really what's going to govern the judgment. And we can do that as well. We don't have to judge anyone, but we point to what Jesus said and say, this is what you are violating. We're not going to be judging the word is. And we, we need to feel no shame and no fear by letting the Word of God judge ourselves and the people around us. Amen. Very good. Other thoughts? Okay, look at chapter 13. Verses 1 to 4. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour hath come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Jesus Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God, and was going back to God, got up from supper, and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. It would be hard to imagine a grander opening to the story of Jesus' death and even to the story of chapter 13. This is a very full statement. Look at what he says. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. I mean, he knows the very significance of this time. He knows the sacrifice he's going to make, and he knows he's going back to the Father. Now, on the verge of these final sufferings, 
that's going to be so grievous to him, what would you anticipate he would be thinking about? You would be immersed in your own grief only. But he, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The night before this ordeal, he forgets himself and shows his love and concern for them. Love is a real key. That word is found 31 times in chapters 13 to 17. Six times here in verses 1 through 12. Jesus loves his own even when he is going to be suffering to the max. What an impressive attitude he has in that. He's there at the supper. Judas already has Satan in his heart to betray him. Jesus, verse 3, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hand, that he'd come forth from God and was going back to God. So Jesus, in full consciousness of who he was, confronted by Satan's final assault, shows his glory in, in, in chapter 13. Not shows his glory by some display of omnipotence, but shows his glory in an amazing act of self-humiliation. But when Jesus washes their feet, he does it with a full sense of who he was. With his glory and dignity. That's amazing. To wash their feet when he knows he's the son of God. Knowing that full well, he humbles himself. He takes, he gets up from supper, he lays aside his perhaps his coat. He takes a towel and, and maybe rolls up his sleeves, whatever he needed to do. And he gets ready to wash their feet. Are you too important? Do you have too important a role to get your hands dirty and serve? Not even Jesus did. He served. This is an amazing event. And it really is so much the foreshadowing of the crucifixion. Because when Jesus is crucified, he's doing the very same thing. He is humbling himself in full consciousness of his deity to serve us. So this is just a, a foreshadowing of what happens in the crucifixion. We'll see that more in a minute. Comments and questions through verse 4. Uh, Tim. Um, if I was It is sure hard to humble ourselves when people don't notice, isn't it? <laughs> and, and that, and that, man, that's so true. Wow. You know, so we're so often willing to do some theatrical act of service. Make sure we get enough attention and, you know, some credit somewhere for that. But to just serve, to serve with no credit, with no glory, with no anything. When we would be tempted to think of ourselves, Jason. At that point, even even then, it's not without someone's 
God. God knows it. And He's going to reward us openly. You're right. You're I, right. I, I know what you mean. I yeah. know what you're saying. You're right. Uh, but that's, the, that's, that's what ought to drive us to continue to do things. Acts of humility even in private. Yeah, and, and even more, we want to glorify the Lord. We're filled with His mission. And we're not really seeking our own glory. Ben? Hey, I had a question. Um, when it talks about, I guess, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas, um, I guess it reminds me, I don't know if there's any similarity, but like Nehemiah talked about what the Lord put on his heart to do the work. I mean, like, I, mean, I guess, how do they, are they totally, totally different, or are they similar kind of statements, and how can we take these statements whenever they're... They're similar statements. I mean, I'm not sure exactly if you're saying... Now, what procedures used to put this in his heart? I don't know the answer to that. In both, in both, in both cases. <laughs> Kelly? Um, you think about what John said about Jesus, he wasn't willing, worthy to tie his shoes. Jesus sort of takes that to a whole another level. Indeed. The one for whom John could not untie the shoes is washing the feet. That's amazing. Another thing is that um, Jesus humbled himself and washed the disciples' feet. Like, in today's society, people today try to take over the throne. They try to take, like, they're, they're like, you know what, God, I'm the boss. I have the power and stuff. We should be alone and stuff. Yes. There's no right to be on that throne. Yes. Yeah, uh, Dave. Uh, when he says that um, he's given all things into his hands, <laughs> Is that pertaining to salvation for man, or is that pertaining to everything? I would say the latter, everything. Right. The language that John used describing how Satan filled Judas's heart reminded me of Acts 5, when yes. Peter was talking to Ananias and Sapphira. He said um, in verse 3, um, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep, ha- keep back yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And also in, um, in verse 4, it says, Why have you contrived this, contrived this in your heart? So Satan put it in there, but Ananias was the one that chose. Yeah, don't ever think Satan puts it in there against Judas's will. Uh, Satan was behind this, but Judas was fully uh, cooperating with this. Josh? Uh, is there any particular reason that John would exclude the actual ceremony of the Lord's Supper? Maybe because he is writing so much later. Well, I don't know the answer to that. And I think it's generally difficult to say why they don't include something. I mean, I don't look at it as John excluding it. John's just including the things he chooses to. And so, I, you know, I just think that's always kind of a difficult question or difficult to make much out of that. Bill? Um, in verse 2, it said that the devil put in his heart to betray him. So we have that there but before when um, Judas was trying to steal the money. That was on his own. That was him doing it out of his own will. Like he wanted the money and it wasn't the devil. Like, Maybe both of them are both. You know, Satan tempts us. But what if Satan tempts you to take drugs? You going to do it? You know, Satan can tempt, but it won't happen unless you are willing to give in to the temptation. Maybe every temptation is Satan-inspired, but we give in and, and, and do it. If we don't, Satan has no effect. Um, the reason that they might have left the Lord's Supper out of 
this gospel because uh, you can see in chapter 20 verse 31 it says but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and believing you may have life in his name not that that's a reason not to include it but this book was particularly written a lot later than the other gospels to try to convince others that God who we said he, said he was versus some of the you know things that you do as a Christian it was trying to convince people to go back see that you know he did these miracles and then and it's just a different purpose and a different audience. And the purpose always controls what's included. Exactly. All right, so look at what happens here. Uh, 5 through 11. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And he answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part, with, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet. But it's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of them. For he knew who was who was to betray him, and he was that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Now, you know, washing people's feet was a typical slave's responsibility. It seems a little odd to us, but we don't walk down dusty roads and sandals. Uh, it would have been a typical service, but not that you would have done for an equal, but that you had the servant do uh, to refresh the feet and so forth. The disciples who had been very willing to fight for a throne were not so inclined to compete for a towel. Jesus is the one who takes the towel and the wash basin and begins to wash their feet. Peter, Lord, do you wash my feet? He's reluctant to let Jesus do that. He says, you know, that, that just doesn't seem right to him. He, he, no, Jesus shouldn't be washing his feet. You know, I think any of the disciples would have been glad to wash Jesus' feet. <laughs> Their problem was in washing each other's feet. You know, and, but to let Jesus wash their feet, that's a very humiliating thing in a way. And Jesus, he just don't understand. Peter says, you never shall you wash my feet. Now, humility. Humility is not just serving. Humility is being served. A willingness to receive service. We don't want to be indebted to anyone. And so we refuse to let others serve us. We don't want to humble ourselves to owe them anything. Peter does not want him to wash his feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. You know, if, if Peter cannot handle this, how can he receive the grace of Jesus' death on the cross for him? That is a much greater act of service. If we're not willing to let the Lord serve us, we have no part with him. Peter, of course, goes to the opposite extreme. Lord, then not, wash not only my feet, but, but also my hands and my head. <laughs> now you appreciate his attitude. You know, he's, he, wants, he wants to every part of Jesus. Um, and if exclusion is the consequence of not being washed, then he can't get washed enough. But it's, it's Peter. You know, he rushes out on the water and then cries, I perish. You know, he strikes with the sword and then flees. He enters the high priest's house and then he denies Jesus. 
And uh, Jesus said, no, all you need is to have your feet washed. <laughs> you know, Jesus has amazing patience with Peter. And uh, I want you to think about this as we just try to see the significance of this. Think about this parallel. Jesus arose from his throne, laid aside the garments of glory, wrapped himself in the towel of humanity, poured his blood out into the basin of the cross and began to wash away the dirt of our sin. And that more or less what he does here. It's just, it's just a, a physical symbol of the greater service and sacrifice of Jesus for us. I can't. I did not write that. Don't ask me who did. But Jesus arose from his throne, laid aside the garments of glory, wrapped himself in the towel of humanity. He poured his blood into the basin of the cross and began to wash away the dirt of our sin. It's a good, good statement. Alan? Can you read that a little more slowly? I can. <laughs> Whoever I'm plagiarizing, I'm sure would appreciate getting credit for that, but... You'll run across that in somebody's commentary. Uh, Jesus arose from his throne. He laid aside the garments of glory. He wrapped himself in the towel of humanity. He poured his blood out into the basin of the cross and began to wash away the dirt of our sin. If you didn't get that, I'm sure Debbie's gotten it three or four times by now. <laughs> Ah, okay. Yes. All right. Uh, and if you need typing lessons, certainly see her. So. Roger. There seems to be an emphasis on Judas uh, both in the beginning and now here. Is there any significance to that? And even in the, in, in the next story we'll look at, there's an emphasis on Judas. Well, I mean, this is pretty significant. <laughs> wow. The defection and betrayal of one of the twelve. That's pretty heavy. Other thoughts? Jody? I think it's, uh, it would be, be a wonderful thing on Peter's, on Peter's part because later on what he's going to do in denying Jesus, and Jesus just came here and he knew that Paul was coming up in the future and he told, he told Peter that he was clean. That's like an incentive for Peter to uh, repent after he he does, you know, because he he does some sinning too, and uh, and Jesus takes him back, and he thought that he that he was totally rejected, he would probably run from Jesus. It's just the idea of just knowing that Jesus, you know, knows knows your core, and is willing to forgive you and things like that. Good point. I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah, that may have comforted Peter uh, in the future. Daniel? Um, I guess it's kind of what he's asking, but are we supposed to see like a, a spiritual parallel with what he says to Peter about, you know, once you're washed, you don't need to wash the body, finish the feet, like kind of this idea of like, you know, once, you, once Jesus cleanses you, like you're, you're going to like have this, you know, over the, over time, your feet are going to dirty walking around, you're going to have sins need to be removed. But you don't need to be like washed completely all the time. Like, I mean, are we supposed to see that parallel there or, or not? A lot of commentators see that in one way or the other. They haven't convinced me yet. Other comments or questions, Seth? If we were Jesus, how hard, knowing what he knew, 
would it be to wash Judas's feet? Would yeah. Would you? you would I, either me? I would either be tempted to skip over him or scrub hard enough to cause him a little bit of pain. <laughs> how, 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 much did he, how much did he love Judas, even though he knew he was going to betray him, to still wash his feet and to still serve him? Good point. Good point. David. So what exactly does he mean at the beginning of the chant? Well, I mean, I just see it as... You know, you don't get it. You know, you've taken a bath. It's not that you need your your body cleaned. You need your feet cleaned. I mean, I think Jesus almost... This is a service. I mean, it symbolizes the greater service of cleansing and forgiveness. But, but he's not doing this as some sort of arbitrary weird thing. They needed their feet cleaned. He's humbling himself to serve them in the way that they need. So... They don't need, he doesn't need him to wash his hands and his head. He's had a shower. So you know. I'm not seeing it. I, but, you know, the fact that I'm not seeing it doesn't mean it's not there. The commentators sometimes go off in weird directions on that. You know, as long as you're justified, all you need is to be sanctified, that kind of stuff. But, but I, you know, maybe there is. I'm just, it just hasn't run through to me. It just seems like it's maybe not that deep, but I may be wrong. Then. Almost always trying to dictate the terms. You know, let Jesus give the parameters, Mason. Yeah, and in that sense, I, I see this uh, expression here. You know, every, the one that's clean doesn't need to be washed except for his feet. As similar to Jesus telling Paul when Paul asked for the uh, thorn in his flesh to be removed, Jesus said, "My grace is sufficient for you." Uh, you know, I, I've done for you what I'm supposed to do. Now you have to. Yes. Be content with what I've done. Exactly. Kevin. Um, I was thinking about your point about um, how disciples probably would have been happy to wash Jesus' feet, but maybe not so much um, each other's feet. And I really struck me because um, until we're willing to wash each other's feet and to serve other people, we really don't understand what it means to wash Jesus' feet and serve him. Exactly. That's exactly right. All right, very good. Good d- discussion. Um, we're going to break. Let me say two or three things to you about this. Uh, there's a bunch of pizzas at our house, so and many of those are bought with other people's money, uh, so I appreciate that. Um, but uh, we can go over there.